Alright, I'm told we're really starting now. I'd like to welcome everybody to the Edward Snowden Award Dinner. All right. No, no, that, that, that's a joke. All right. Walter Durante, the, the, whose, actually, whose name actually is given to this award, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize in 1932, 82 years ago. Uh, those are very different times. America was war-weary. The economy was in rough shape. There was a sense that the country was moving in the wrong direction. I... Uh, and uh, there was a crisis in Ukraine. Other than that, they were very different times. Roger Simon told me, don't say too much about Walter Durante because he's got a little spiel he wants to give you with all the background telling you who Walter Durante was, why we have the prize in this honor, in his honor. So, Roger, I give it to you. I know a fair number of you were here last year, so uh, the reason I'm I'm saying this again is we're taping this, this will go out on the internet and elsewhere, and we want everyone to know why we're giving this prize, why a Walter Durante prize, or as my ancestors said every year, why is this night different from other nights? Uh, On other nights, we celebrate journalistic excellence, as in the Pulitzer Prize. But on this night, we celebrate a man who lied about Stalin and won the Pulitzer Prize. Well, we don't really celebrate him. We refer to him. We use him as our emblem of something that is all around us, journalistic mendacity so awful, so meretricious, so despicably self-regarding that it is indeed in the tradition of Walter Durante, who, basically for his own self-aggrandizement, he wasn't even a communist, whitewashed Stalin's mass starvation of upwards of a million Ukrainians, not to mention numerous other atrocities of the Soviet Union, from the Gulag to the purge trials, for nearly 20 years as Moscow correspondent of the New York Times, while using, as an excuse for his totalitarian evil, his oft-quoted phrase, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. So we're back again. A few months late, but we're back for our annual celebration of journalistic mendacity known as the Durante Prize and our new award for lifetime achievement called the Rather, of which more later. I think any award of the nature of the Durante should be judged by its past recipients, don't you? Whether they were really and truly deserving of their honor, that's how we judge the Nobel Peace Prize, after all. Don't we? Anyway, looking back briefly at last year's Durante honorees, we find as runner-up Bob Simon, no relation, uh, for his 60-minute segment, Christians of the Holy Land. That mini-documentary blamed the Israelis and their infamous security wall, not the Muslim terrorists who engendered its construction, for the plight of the Christians on the West Bank. During last year's ceremony, Roger Kimball, sitting over there, called this 60-minute segment, and I quote, a textbook case of employing the trappings and authority of objective reporting in order to further the ends of ideology. Was Roger correct? And how? Just weeks ago, a video surfaced on YouTube from an exceptionally brave young Palestinian Christian woman named Christy Anastas. Anastas. Christy is living under political asylum in Britain now, an asylum she obtained in a record three days because she is under constant death threat from West Bank terrorists, Islamists. Miss Anastas evidently appeared with her family in Bob Simon's segment when she was still in Bethlehem, but she wasn't particularly pleased by the way it was edited. In an eloquent speech at Uppsala University that I commend to all of you, it's online, She contradicts literally everything Simon put forth on 60 Minutes about who is responsible for the Christian flight. Of course, she may be biased. Her uncle was blinded for life after being shot in the head at point-blank range, not by an IDF soldier, of course, but by an Islamic terrorist, a curious omission among many from the 60 Minutes segment. 
I should have known better, but I was so outraged that when I saw Mrs. Anastas' video that on behalf of PJ Media, I called and emailed the executive producer of 60 Minutes, Jeff Fager, for a comment or reaction. You may be astonished to hear that I have received thus far no reply. As for our grand prize winner last year, the Durante itself, as many of you will recall, that was awarded to Joan Juliet Buck and editor Anna Wintour for their charming Vogue magazine at home with the trendy Assads. Asma al-Assad arose in the desert. Where is Asma anyway these days? It seems she's disappeared from view for some reason. No more shopping trips to Mayfair, apparently. 150,000 corpses later, it's astounding that anyone could have written anything such cynical, fawning tripe, even for a fashion publication. But that's what we have, the Durante Prize, to make people stop and think before they do something as horrible as that, or at least to call attention to it when they do. Durante's photo, it is always worth noting, still adorns the wall of the New York Times along with its other Pulitzer winners. Some things never change. And now, this year's prizes. James? Thank you, Roger. I guess every rose has its thorn, right? I, you know, the food here is very good, but uh, wouldn't it be wittier if they served omelets? I, and one final uh, small correction. Uh, none of you were here last year. The last uh, Durante Prize dinner was in October 2012, about a year and a half ago, which makes this the sesquiennial. Uh, I looked this up on Google, the sesquiennial Durante Prize Awards. Uh, here to present the prize for the second runner-up, which is, that is the third place finisher, is uh, Ron Radosh. The third runner-up this year for the Walter Durante Award is my newest, my latest ex-friend, John B. Judas of the New Republic. Hired by TNR decades ago by Marty Peretz to cover American politics, in the past few years he has turned out, turned out to be TNR's man to go to for analysis concerning Israel and the Middle East. In agreeing to publish Judas in its pages, the magazine's once proud pro-Israel tradition has disappeared. In its place is a continuing analysis of the area by Judas. I agree with what Leon Wieseltier, the magazine's literary editor, wrote in a now famous email to me, calling Judas's knowledge of Jewish history and Zionism, quote, shallow, derivative, tendentious, imprecise, and sometimes risably inaccurate, making him a tourist in the subject. I consider that actually an understatement. Uh, to this description, I give my hearty agreement. What gives Judas the claim to expertise is his recent book, Genesis, Truman, American Jews, and the Origins of Israel. The book received universally bad reviews, even from reviewers who know Zionism and Israel and who agree with Judas's current-day political answers and positions on the Middle East. Uh, one example is Bernard Wasserstein in the Realist journal, The National Interest. The most popular defenders of Judas is the rabid anti-Israel website, Mondoweiss, which tells us something about the quarters in which Judas's support now live. He shares the backing of that publication along with his other uh, colleague uh, who's popular in that website, the vicious self-hating Jew, Max Blumenthal. In everything Judas now writes when covering the Middle East, he writes from the assumption that Zionism and a Jewish state was illegitimate from the start, that it should not have been created, and that Jews from the 1920s to the 40s should have put their fate living as a minority in an Arab state. As he so eloquently puts it, quote, 
Zionism's goal was to screw the Arabs, unquote, and not to build a homeland for Europe's beleaguered Zionist, beleaguered Jewish remnant at the end of the war, of World War II. What the Zionists did, he writes, was to create a settler colonialist movement whose aim was to, quote, conquer and not merely live in Palestine. In making this argument, he does not seem to realize that not only is it not original, but is really the resurrection of a long-standing anti-Zionist position from both Arabs and communist cadre in the 1920s and the 1930s. It is really the propaganda of the major enemies of Jews and Zionism. All of these assessments were presented in his essay in The New Republic, January 15th, which was a summary of his argument that he said would be presented in greater depth in his book. But in the article, he skips to the present, arguing that since Israel annexed East Jerusalem, quote, a Muslim holy site, unquote, and then created, quote, the occupation of the West Bank, unquote, the result was the growth, he writes, of Islamic nationalism in the Middle East in the 70s, as well as the rise of international terrorist groups. Absent in his article is any indication that Israel won these areas by defeating Arab forces that attacked them. Or, nor is there any discussion of radical Islamist ideology, which to Judas evidently does not exist. Instead, the entire blame for tension and war in the Middle East is the fault of one nation alone, Israel. After all, he writes, in the 1996 fatwa issued by Osama bin Laden, who talked about the Zionist Crusader Alliance, Judas implies that there might not have been war and tension in the Middle East and any attacks on the United States uh, because of uh, what uh, Israel did. He concludes that if America's continued support for Israel revealed in both military aid and a tilt to Israel in negotiations with Palestinians, this is what has fueled anti-Americanism. He seems unaware that since the Obama administration took office, American policy has, especially now under the guidance of John Kerry as Secretary of State, tilted most often against Israel, asking it to make concessions while shying away from any commensurate pressure it might have put on the Palestinian Authority. So Judas suggests that tilting away from Israel would have the salutary effect of reducing international tension, removing an important sense, uh, source of error, and allowing the United States to act as an honest broker rather than a partisan in the region. He writes, if only there was instead of Israel a federated or binational Palestine today. In saying that, he shows his readers that he favors a solution that no party, Arab or Jew, supports in the entire Middle East. Judas proves true, true to form when writing other columns on Iran, on Israel, and the Middle East. What he liked about Obama's State of the Union speech in October 2013 was Obama's threat to veto any legislation from Congress that would heighten sanctions against Iran. Judas is certain that such a bill would derail negotiations with Iran, preventing the administration from, quote, having a chance to secure a breakthrough with the mullahs. The villain, he writes, is AIPAC, which stood behind the resolution and gained the support of 43 Republicans and 16 Democrats. This, of course, is an example of bipartisanship that this time Judas bemoans. Defeating sanctions, he assures us, is both in America's and Israel's interest. Uh, the first time he, prepares, he pretends to be concerned with Israel's existence. To achieve this, he writes, is to oppose malignant interference from Congress. Policy, he suggests, essentially should be left to the executive and what liberals used to call the imperial presidency. Uh, I don't recall Judas during the Vietnam War making the uh, argument 
that the executive has the right to do what it wants. In yet another column, October 1st, he condemned Benjamin Netanyahu for saying in his UN speech something, quote, shockingly bad when he argued that Hassan Rouhani was a wolf in sheep's clothing. He also dared to say that Iran had fanatic leaders who were vowing to wipe Israel off the map. Judas then proceeded to inform his readers how many sincere moves Iran had made in overtures to the U.S. that everyone rejected. He adds, Rouhani even tweeted, wishing Jews a happy Rosh Hashanah. Uh, Judas somehow forgot to tweet the addendum when Iran immediately denied that that was really Rouhani's tweet. Uh, the point he had already made, he shows eternal trust in the government of Iran and distrust and hatred of the government of Israel. Finally, he condemned Netanyahu for making conditions for negotiations that the Palestinians are not ready to accept. How dare Netanyahu defend his country's interests against those who threaten it and wish its destruction? I am waiting anxiously for a column by Judas urging the Palestinians to recognize the Jewish state of Israel. Somehow I don't think that will be coming. The question is why does anyone take John Judas's writings on the Middle East and Israel seriously? He believes, as he makes very clear in his book, that Israel was created by Zionists who, conspiring with the British, quote, decided to screw the Arabs out of a country that by the prevailing standards of self-determination should have been theirs. Uh, and thus, he says, Israel is now one of the world's last colonialist powers. Power. His analysis, I would argue, is only to be matched by another journalist, the late Helen Thomas, uh, with whom he bears uh, a good comparison. Finally, Judas was not wise enough to take his own advice, given at the end of his book. He does not offer policy solutions, he says in his conclusion, because he said... Quite, I am not thoroughly acquainted with the current actors. At the time he wrote that, however, he was not one bit shy in the next few paragraphs of attacking Benjamin Netanyahu for his insistence of drawing the bogus issue that the Arabs and Palestinians should recognize Israel as a Jewish state. Having chastised Israel for getting the UN in 1947 to accept partition and creation of two states, he finally wrote last April 14th in praise of John Kerry and the Obama administration because they had blamed Israel for the breakdown of talks. And this, he says, was the best hope, therefore, is for letting Palestinians now go to the UN. It was only the Israelis, of course, in Judas's eyes, who were responsible for the end of the peace process. So he offers his solution, quote, the U.S. should be supporting Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority's attempt to bring the U.N. into the negotiations. So we offer this Durante Award to John B. Judas, who proves time and time again that his concept of journalism is to simply condemn Israel and back the Palestinians, whose propaganda and whose words he accepts at face value. This, of course, will be mailed to Mr. Judas, not by me. Thank you, Ron. I, I have a feature in my column called Worst Appeals to Authority, and I kind of wish I'd caught that uh, reference to Osama bin Laden at the time it came out. Uh, one other point, uh, Ron mentioned that nobody else in the Middle East is for this binational state idea. Uh, that wasn't true until recently. Uh, there was uh, one uh, leader who wrote a piece for the New York Times of all places about five years ago uh, calling for the creation of a single state called Isratine. Uh, that was uh, Muammar Gaddafi. As, uh, as our next presenter pointed out in a piece for PJ Media, uh, the suffix teen is a slang term, a reference for, I guess it's what, excrement? Uh, and so uh, there was some question about uh, Mr. Qaddafi's sincerity. 
Uh, our next presenter to, uh, uh, to uh, award the first runner-up prize is uh, Claudia Rosette, my former uh, cubicle mate at the Wall Street Journal. Claudia, take it away. Thank you, James, and a privilege it was. If that was important, let me know. Um, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. It's a real pleasure to be here again. Uh, and I'd like to start by just saying it is one, there are certain verities in life. And one of them, as the narratives of the Fourth Estate rarely fail to remind us, is that journalists tend to regard themselves as the guardians and the escorts of civic progress and virtue. Thus freighted with a sense of a higher mission than anyone else, they are naturally tempted to insert themselves right into the middle of the nation's political debates. The more consequential, the better. That may go some distance toward explaining the mess we are in these days. But for all the power of the pen, the keyboard, the microphone, and the TV cameras, it's not often that a journalist has the opportunity to influence an American presidential election with the mere utterance of a single untruth. Such a moment did, however, present itself to our first runner-up. And when it came, she did not flinch. The selection committee of the Walter Durante Prize for Journalistic Mendacity is pleased to bestow the award of first runner-up on CNN's chief political correspondent, Candy Crowley, for her extraordinary performance during the 2012 presidential race as moderator of the second debate between the Democratic incumbent, President Barack Obama, and the Republican contender, Governor Mitt Romney. The moment of truth, or more precisely, untruth, arose out of a question about Benghazi, Libya, and the September 11th terrorist attack which had taken place there just over a month earlier. Questions were swirling around the administration's attempts that September to blame what was clearly a terrorist attack on a spontaneous mob enraged by a hateful video. In the debate, Mr. Obama claimed that his remarks the morning after the, in the morning, on the morning after the attack, he had called it, quote, an act of terror, which in fact he had not. Mr. Romney, catching the president in a lie, challenged the rev this revision of history. And at that fraught moment, Ms. Crowley inserted herself directly into the debate, putting her thumb on the scale for Mr. Obama. The result was to throw the exchange in, fa in the favor of the incumbent and sweep Benghazi as an issue out of the race. What effect this had at the polls that November, we will never know. We might, however, well wonder. But allow me to provide a little more context. Ms. Crowley inserted herself directly into the debate, putting her thumb in the skit. I'm sorry, let me provide a little more context. Let me put on my glasses. <laughs> there we go. Ah, oh, yes, that September, in what appeared at that stage to be a hotly contested presidential race, Mr. Obama was running on a foreign policy platform that included claims about the tide of war receding and al-Qaeda being on the run. On September 11th, heavily armed al-Qaeda-linked terrorists delivered a nightmare contradiction to that narrative, attacking an American diplomatic compound in Benghazi and a nearby annex. In the attack, four Americans, including Ambassador Chris Stevens, were murdered. It was the first time in 33 years that a serving American ambassador had been killed. On the 11th anniversary of the 2001 attack on this country, it was a terrorist attack with links to al-Qaeda. But that same evening of the attack, September 11th, in Washington, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton released a statement implying that the attacks had been sparked by what came to be known in the following weeks as the video. She said, some have sought to justify this vicious behavior as a response to inflammatory material posted on the internet. The United States deplores any intentional effort to denigrate the religious beliefs of others. The next morning before hitting the campaign trail to Las Vegas, Mr. Obama delivered his first public remarks on the attacks. Speaking from the White House Rose Garden, he echoed Ms. Clinton's allusion to the video. Quote, he said, quote, we reject all efforts to denigrate the religious beliefs of others. This somehow was part of the mourning for the fallen. 
Mr. Obama did not call the horror in Benghazi a terrorist attack. In an artfully fudged bit of phrasing, the closest he came to the truth was to generalize, saying, no acts of terror will ever shake the resolve of this great nation. Okay, but sidestepping the carnage of the hour with an abstraction, coupled with the allusion to the video, that added up to a rather different message than if he had squarely informed the American public on that shaken Wednesday morning that four Americans had just died in a terrorist attack in Libya. Instead, as we all remember, four days later, UN ambassador, as I watched with stupefied wonder, uh, instead, four days later, UN ambassador Susan Rice appeared on five Sunday TV talk shows blaming the Benghazi attack on a spontaneous mob infuriated by the hateful video. Fast forward to the October 16th presidential debate at which our winner, our first runner-up, Candy Crowley, was moderating. By that time, in the face of emerging details, the Obama administration had been forced to concede that the Benghazi attack was an act of terror. The video narrative was looking less like a campaign-saving maneuver and more like a campaign-damaging cover-up. And in the debate, apparently trying to cover up the cover-up, Mr. Obama claimed that the day after the attack, speaking from the White House Rose Garden, he had called it, quote, an act of terror. Mr. Romney challenged this revision of history, saying, quote, I want to make sure we get that for the record because it took the president 14 days before he called it an act of terror. Mr. Obama replied, get the transcript. What he got instead was Candy Crowley. Shedding her role as moderator, she jumped in on Mr. Obama's behalf with her own reply to Mr. Romney's point. And it was an important point that Mr. Obama on September 12th contrary to his own account on October 16th, had not called the Benghazi attack an act of terror. I will quote the brief exchange in full because this was our prize winner's big moment. It began somewhat inauspiciously. She was in such a hurry to insert herself into the debate that uh, the first phrase was, it, 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 he did in fact, sir, said Candy. With the verve of a bodyguard, she threw herself, verbally at least, in the path of any further accusations against Mr. Obama. Quote, so let me, let me call it an act of terror. Mr. Obama did not pass up this opportunity. Can you say that a little louder, Candy, he asked. She obliged, saying to Mr. Romney, the utterance that clinched for her this evening's prize, quote, he, he did call it an act of terror. With that, Ms. Crowley transformed the two-man presidential debate into a three-ring circus. Mr. Romney was now debating not only the incumbent, but the moderator, who was repeating... <laughs> it is incredible. You can watch it on video. Uh, who was repeating at Mr. Obama's request, Mr. Obama's untruth. Further muddying the scene, Ms. Crowley then threw in the somewhat incoherent statement... It did, as well take, it did as well take two weeks or so for the whole idea there being a riot out there about this tape to come out. Apparently, this was supposed to be a sop to Mr. Romney because she then conceded that whatever she meant by this gibberish, quote, you are right about that. <laughs> At that point in the debate, being right no longer mattered. Mr. Romney tried to recover his point, but Ms. Crowley was by then in a big hurry to move on. The exchange devolved into crosstalk, in which the final words went to Mr. Obama, who was also in a hurry to move right along because, as he said, referencing the audience, quote, I just want to make sure that all of these wonderful folks are going to have a chance to get some of their questions answered. Shortly after the debate, Ms. Crowley, a freshly minted celebrity of that campaign season, made her own rounds on the TV talk shows. Everyone was asking her, so what happened in that debate? That was remarkable. She told CNN's Anderson Cooper that Mr. Romney was, quote, right in the main, but, quote, picked the wrong word. She told CNN's Soledad O'Brien that, quote, I was trying to sort of, you know, bring some clarity to the conversation. <laughs> she appeared on The View to a very enthusiastic Barbara Walters, where she explained that she'd been trying, quote, trying to move the conversation along, and they got stuck on this word, she compared the Romney-Obama disagreement to President Clinton's disquisition on what the definition of is was and excused her own intervention as, quote, it did not come to me as, I'm going to fact check this. It came to me as, could we get past this? The point is, this is a semantic thing. Actually, it was not just a semantic thing. 
nor was it a matter of what the meaning of is was. The words at issue were, quote, an act of terror. The act of terror in question was one in which four Americans died, two of them choking on the smoke of a diesel-fueled conflagration and two hit by mortars. And the context of the semantic thing, in which it was the prerogative of the candidates, not the moderator, to pick the words, was a nationally televised debate in the race for the job of President of the United States. Whatever Ms. Crowley hoped to achieve, she did manage to get the election season debate past those awkward Benghazi questions. That was the end of Benghazi as a major element in the race, though it appears there are a lot of questions yet to be answered. I must mention that in considering Ms. Crowley for a Durante Award, the selection committee did discuss whether an award could be given for achievements that took place not in 2013 but in 2012. However, Ms. Crowley took up the Benghazi semantic thing again last year, in May 2013, on CNN's State of the Union show, which she anchors. She did not apologize for misleading the nation, derailing a presidential campaign debate, and running interference for Mr. Obama in a, at that point, hotly contested election. Actually, she appeared to have dropped her own starring role in that debate right down the memory hole. Speaking to one of President Obama's senior advisors, Dan Pfeiffer, about Susan, the Susan Rice video talking points and Mr. Obama's strange equivocations and semantic haze and video illusions in the weeks just after Benghazi, Ms. Crowley asked, she asked the White House aide, quote, so why wouldn't the president just say, yeah, it was a terrorist attack? A good question, seven months late. Was it perhaps because his campaign narrative at that stage, like Ms. Crowley's interjection into the debate, trumped any interest in the truth? What we do know is, okay, bear with me, there she was in 2013 asking why the president at a critical moment in 2012 did not say the words which at another critical moment she had insisted he did say. In this philosophy of the universe, it's always a question of what the meaning of is is, or as Ms. Crowley explained during her campaign season appearance on The View, quote, people are going to look at this thing through the prism that they look at this through. And, <laughs> and I get that. So do we. Having judged that Candy Crowley, with her efforts to bring clarity to the 2012 presidential campaign, and then to disavow any responsibility for the results, has satisfied in every particular the requirements of the selection committee. We are pleased to congratulate her as first runner-up for the 2014 Walter Durante Award for Journalistic Bendacity. Thank you, Claudia. You know, if you want to see the video that gave us Benghazi, what you do is you go to YouTube and search for Joe Biden, September 6, 2012. That was his speech on the final night of the Democratic Convention, which he said, uh, after inform us, informing us that Barack Obama has a spine of steel, he said that thanks to him, Osama bin Laden is dead and General Motors is alive, the narrative of the campaign to which Claudia alluded. Well, at least things are going swimmingly for GM, huh? <laughs> now to deliver the uh, first prize, although not the final prize, uh, but the penultimate prize, uh, the first prize for uh, journal the Roger Durante Award, uh, Walter Durante Award for Journalistic Mendacity. Sorry, we're filled with Rogers here. Roger Kimball. Well, you'll see that this pudding has a theme tonight. And on the subject of foodstuffs, I'd like to just revert to uh, that omelet that Mr. Durante referred to. Of course, you, many of you here will know that uh, George Orwell famously responded, okay, it, it, you, to make an omelet, you have to break a bunch of eggs, but where's the omelet about the Soviet Union? Well, oh, what a tangled web we weave. 
Now, the best authorities tell me that Sir Walter Scott did not, in fact, have the administration of Barack Obama in mind when he wrote those lines. Nor, I suppose, did the later wit who completed Scott's lines with the observation that, but when we practice quite a while, how vastly we improve our style. Still, I, I'm struck by the uncanny pertinence of that little ditty to what was, for a few nanoseconds, described by some as the most transparent administration in history. Remember that? Now, we award the Durante Prizes for conspicuous achievement in the field of journalistic mendacity. Were we to broaden the prizes to include political mendacity, as been suggested earlier tonight, the Obama administration would afford an embarrassment, well, not of riches exactly, but an embarrassment of tempting candidates for one or more Durante Awards. Remember, if you like your health care plan, you can keep your health care plan, period. Remember, too, that there is not a smidgen of corruption, not a smidgen of corruption in the IRS. Just ask Lois Lerner if you can get her to set aside her taking the Fifth Amendment for a moment. And remember, remember also what, what Claudia has spoken about, uh, the events of September 11, 2012, the, the riots in Cairo and the massacre in Benghazi. They, of course were sparked by a sophomoric internet video about a notorious medieval anti-Semite and pedophile. Those riots and the massacre had absolutely nothing to do with any failure of Obama's policies with respect to the Islamic world. How could they? Obama himself has said over and over that he decimated al-Qaeda. He told us so himself many times, just as he had told us as far back as 2007 that Muslim hostility toward the United States would end the day he was inaugurated, the very day he was inaugurated. I'm only surprised that he didn't add, period. Now, I wonder what the families of the shootings at Fort Hood or the bombings at the Boston Marathon and indeed the massacre at Benghazi might have to say about, about that. But hey, dude, that was a long time ago. Well, there's a lot more I could say about the most transparent administration in history. And as it happens, this year's first prize winner of the Walter Durante Award for Journalistic Mendacity has earned his laurel crown for aiding and abetting one critical and indeed ongoing episode of the Obama administration's fraud and dissimulation practice against the American people. I mean the many centrifuges of spin, lies, stonewalling, and cover-ups that have emanated from the administration about Benghazi since the White House was first informed that someone had blundered on September 11, 2012, even as former Navy SEALs Ty Woods and Glenn Doherty were fighting to save their lives and the lives of many other people in that CIA annex. Now, it's partly to shore up the Obama administration's narrative about Benghazi and partly to pave the way for the possible return of what difference does it make Hillary Clinton that the New York Times published David M. Kirkpatrick's extraordinary saga, A Deadly Mix in Benghazi, on December 28, 2013. You know from the citations of my fellow judges, uh, you know from their, their citations that, they, uh, that the many runners-up uh, this year, uh, it's a rich field. It's a rich field for journalistic mendacity. But we all felt that David Kirkpatrick was the clear winner and indeed a worthy successor to the eponymous inspiration for this prize, Walter Durante. Roger Simons already told you a bit about him, but think about this. He telegraphed back to the New York Times in 1933 the grateful news that, quote, 
Any report of a famine in Russia is today an exaggeration or malignant propaganda. Roger mentioned the, the, the death toll of a million. I have read that the death toll from, from uh, Stalin's deliberately engineered famine was seven million people. I mean, this is a man who had the, the windows on trains soldered shut so that people going through Ukraine at the time could not open them and throw food out to the starving people. An incredibly monstrous uh, episode. Now, Durante, as Roger mentioned, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 1932 for his reporting from the Soviet Union, which I think provides a pretty good sense of exactly what that award is worth. For its part, the New York Times has resisted repeated calls to revoke Durante's award, perhaps feeling that once started down that slippery slope, they would not know where to stop. Now, one of the most impressive things about a deadly mix in Benghazi is its detail. It's a long piece. It's divided into six chapters from warning signs through bedlam and aftermath. It's accompanied by dramatic photographs, maps, schematic drawings. The internet version even has these nifty uh, animated graphics, so you kind of click on it and it shows you, uh, you know, people moving from one compound to the other. It's, it's pretty, uh, pretty impressive, really. Um, the, the, the essay practically screams, please give me a Pulitzer Prize. Well, I doubt that will happen, partly because the ink was not yet dry on that day's fish wrap before its central contentions were authoritatively disputed, and partly because the abundance of detail there is little more than an insubstantial smokescreen. Let's start with the story's main contentions. Quote, Months of investigation by the New York Times, David Kirkpatrick writes near the beginning of his piece, centered on extensive interviews with Libyans in Benghazi who had direct knowledge of the attack there and its context, turned up, and here is contention number one, no evidence that al-Qaeda or other international terrorist groups had any role in the assault. And contrary to claims made by certain members of Congress, you know who, which ones, and here is his contention number two, it was fueled in large part by anger at an American-made video denigrating Islam. Now, unfortunately for David Kirkpatrick, his story hadn't even been packed up for the weekend recycling before a House Intelligence Committee report concluded, Pache, the New York Times, that the Benghazi attack was, quote, an al-Qaeda-led event. The culprit was, quote, not a video. Representative Mike Rogers observed that the whole part of the video thing was debunked time and time again. It was not a spontaneous uprising, as was put about by the Obama administration at the time, and was, with certain qualifications, reprised by David Kirkpatrick. Rather, it was a, quote, pre-planned, organized terrorist event orchestrated by al-Qaeda. Now, there has emerged, since that House Intelligence Committee report, a steady trickle of corroborating detail as group after group has rested, via freedom of information suits, more and more facts about Benghazi from the most transparent administration in history. For example, not only do we know that the murderous terrorist attack that left four Americans dead was orchestrated by al-Qaeda, we also know that the Obama administration know because... The Pentagon intelligence has publicly told us that they told the Obama administration this. The drip, drip, drip of revelations about Benghazi suddenly turned into a cataract last week after Judicial Watch managed via yet another FOIA suit against the administration to disgorge what some has, have been calling the smoking gun, gun prep call email sent by Ben Rhodes Obama's deputy national security advisor, to help prepare Susan Rice, Obama's ambassador to the UN, on her way to that whirlwind trip around the television shows that, that Claudia mentioned just a few days after the massacre, to explain, or rather, to utterly misrepresent what happened. Among the talking points Ben Rogers supplied for the guidance of Susan Rice were the advice to, quote, underscore that those protests are rooted in an internet video and not a broader failure of policy, heaven forfend. The time, remember, was September 2012, 
just a few scant weeks before the presidential election. It was not a moment when the Obama administration wanted the issue of executive competence bruited about. Now, the poet Delmore Schwartz once observed that even paranoids have enemies. Delmore would have liked the whole wheels-within-wheels story about Benghazi. He would, for example, have savored the detail that Ben Rhodes is, is the brother of David Rhodes, head of news at CBS, which has maintained an almost autistic lack of curiosity about Benghazi, and which cut loose their one inquisitive investigative reporter, Cheryl Atkinson, when she exhibited troubling signs of wanting to do her job and actually find out what happened. (laughs) Now let me end with a few observations about the smokescreen aspect of David Kirkpatrick's essay. Many months of exhaustive investigation, and what what does the Times produce? Not only was it dead wrong in its major contentions, but consider the questions it doesn't answer or even doesn't, doesn't even raise. We learn that Ambassador Chris Stevens and the heads of some local militias got together and snacked on Twinkie-like cakes on September 9th. But how about these other questions, these other interesting questions? How did Chris Stevens actually die? Why has there been no autopsy published? Why did the U.S. military not try to intervene? There were assets in Italy a a scant hour away. There was a stand-down order issued to Ty Woods and Glenn Doherty. Who was the ultimate source of that order? And speaking of ultimate sources, where was the ultimate, ultimate source that night? Where was Barack Obama? We have it on the authority of Tommy Dude Vitor, a former national security spokesman, that Obama was not in the Situation Room that night. Where was he? What was he doing? Preparing for his fundraiser in Las Vegas the next day? We don't know. Why wasn't answering that part, that question, part of the New York Times' exhaustive research? We'll probably never get the full answers to most of these questions, but David Kirkpatrick's elaborate exercise in ideologically motivated historical revisionism nevertheless really is something special. It exhibits a mendacity that is both deep and insinuating, poaching skillfully on the tattered but still powerful reputation of a once great newspaper, coolly reinforcing the partisan damage control concocted as the 2012 presidential election entered its final phase, and subtly disparaging any counter-narrative that might be thought damaging to the administration's skein of lies. My own suspicion is that David Kirkpatrick's ultimate ambition had less to do with salvaging President Obama's crumbling reputation than it did with removing obstacles littering the way toward Hillary Clinton's eventual nomination in 2016. I also suspect, however, that that recent revelations have put paid to that enterprise, just as they have definitively revealed a deadly mix in Benghazi, to be little more than a conjuries of lies half-truths, and ideologically motivated obfuscations. So, congratulations to you, David M. Kirkpatrick. The judges were enthusiastically unanimous in recognizing your unsurpassed claim to first prize in this year's Walter Durante Award for Journalistic Mendacity. Dude, you deserve it. Uh, Thank you, Roger. I have been asked to announce that the bar closes at 8 p.m., at which point your drink tickets uh, lose all their value. In fact, if you'll uh, stand by for just a Now we come to the Rather Award. Uh, When we were emailing back and forth back in 2012 about the first sesquiennial uh, Durante Awards for Journalistic Mendacity, I emailed and said, oh, we've got to give it to Dan Rather. To which Roger Simon replied, dude, that was like eight years ago. I quote from memory. My argument was, rather it just come out with a memoir, of which I had received a review copy, so this was uh, was on my mind. I only read the one chapter about his uh, heroic lawsuit against CBS, uh, in which he he claimed that he had been wrongfully terminated uh, over the... uh, 
uh, the, the fake memos that, uh, that he ran with back in 2004. Uh, the lawsuit was completely unsuccessful, completely meritless, and yet somehow he managed to portray it as a, as a heroic effort. But I guess we've given old Dan uh, an even better award. Uh, oh, by the way, I'll, I'll tell you a little story. The one time I met Dan, rather. It was November 2000. Uh, the uh, Florida recount battle was still going on. Rather was giving a talk, uh, I think it was a Cipriani down on 42nd Street, to a group called Business Executives for National Security. A friend of mine had invited me. And Rather is giving this talk, and he says in this, in this way that journalists can be so sanctimonious, he said something like, uh, you know, we really screwed up on election night. So I thought I'd have a little fun. I went up to him after the talk, and I said, you know, I think you were too hard on yourself. I said, you know, first you called it for gore, and then you said it was too close to call. No, first you said it was too close to call. Then you called it for gore. Then you said it was too close to call. Then you called it for Bush. Then you said it was too close to call. You were right three times out of five. <laughs> he didn't know what to make of this. He said, he said in this, again, this sanctimonious tone, yeah, but we should have done better. Then, then there's a pause that he says, but thank you. <laughs> Anyway, here to present the Dan Rather Lifetime Achievement Award, I, and hopefully quickly enough that we can all get our final drinks, is Roger Simon. I absolutely promise to keep this brief so that you'll get your final drinks. This is, my style is always to be brief. Anyway, the Rather. Media bias is a lifetime endeavor. Who knows when it begins? If, as some say, life begins at the moment of conception, it could be then. <laughs> Indeed, bias is, uh, is basic to the human condition, built into our psyches and largely about me. You are biased in favor of something that gets you something. Food, shelter, power, money, fame, partners of the same or opposite sex, whichever you prefer, even eternal life. No one is unbiased. At least I haven't met him or her yet. The wise, or at least the honest, admit their prejudices. But many live under the pretense that they are not biased, li lying to others and even more significantly to themselves. Dan Rather was and is one of the greatest recent exemplars of this kind of self-deception in journalism. And it is fitting we name our Award for Lifetime Achievement for media bias after him, not to mention that he already inadvertently gave the name to PJ Media, formerly Pajamas Media, one of our hosts here tonight. It will re be recalled that back in 2004, speaking of that fateful year, when a group of bloggers questioned the legitimacy of supposedly official National Guard papers besmirching the Guard service of then presidential candidate George W. Bush, papers that had been repeatedly promulgated as authentic by Mr. Rather on 60 Minutes, his executive producer, Jonathan Klein, publicly proclaimed those bloggers a bunch of amateurs in their pajamas. And it's pajamas media. Klein, Klein, no intellectual, was evidently unaware that Proust wrote Remembrance of Things Past in his pajamas. To this day, Rather, no longer an anchorman as we know, has not acknowledged that he lied about the forged Bush National Guard papers. That's because he thinks he lied for a greater good. His narrative was correct, so those papers were to him, in essence, spiritually, if not factually, real. I believe the meme on the internet is fake but accurate. <laughs> And what was that greater good? Our, on first blush, we would say the conventional modern liberal view of our politics and society. But as I have suggested, it is something more personal. For rather in many others, their wealth and more particularly their views, uh, more particularly their fame, had fused with this worldview. They could not reconsider their views or observe them with even enough objectivity to see an ob obvious forgery because they had become one with them. Their self, their identity, was dependent upon them. That which makes you powerful must be true. As others have suggested, this is in the realm of faux religious faith, also in the realm of severe narcissistic personality disorder. Which leads us to the first ever honoree for the rather. The committee indeed had many choices. 
enough to fill a decade of dinners or maybe several decades. But we had to pick one. I have to confess that our choice was once a hero of mine, which says a lot more about me and who I was than it does about him. But indeed, for many years, this man was a media star. Known to many as the greatest investigative reporter of his generation, he has been described by the Financial Times as the last great American reporter. Unfortunately, he was also a serial fabricator. After making his name at the age of 33 with the exposure of the My Lai Massacre, for which he won a Pulitzer, he garnered important positions with the New York Times, speaking of Walter Randy, and later the New Yorker. But the Times grew quickly nervous about his scattershot approach to the truth and let him go. Not so the New Yorker, for whom our honoree wrote for years, including six extensive pieces during the Bush administration claiming he had personal information. The United States was about to launch a war against the Islamic Republic of Iran, each time revising his date when it didn't happen, much like a Seventh-day Adventist pushing back Armageddon every year or two. All this was done based on inside sources almost never identified beyond, quote, a former senior intelligence official or a senior commander, in quotes. This was the wound of our honoree who had evolved its own special style of reporting, relying on those secret sources that had long since crossed the border into fiction, and not, and not particularly good fiction at that. This style had evolved from his 1983 book on Henry Kissinger, in which our man without real evidence, alleged Prime Minister Desai of India, had been a paid agent of the CIA. These prevarications, based always on secret or sketchy sources, one man that even he admitted, quote, lies like people breathe, unquote, continued on until into his 1991 tome, The Samson Option, Israel's Nuclear Arsenal and American Foreign Policy, in which our honoree claimed that Israel blackmailed the U.S. during the Yom Kippur War by threatening to go nuclear against his Arab enemies. Nixon himself said this had no foundation. But that didn't stop our honoree and his many fans, not even the absurd allegations in his 1997 doorstopper about the Kennedys, the dark side of Camelot, that JFK offered hush money to Marilyn Monroe and conspired with the mafia to overthrow Castro. These factoids were based, as it turned out, apropos of the rather, on forged documents. Like Dan, our man was always ready to believe anything that supported his narrative or that would shock, make people pay attention to him. This is continuing to more contemporary times with wild and always inaccurate, not to mention disparaging to America, allegations about Abu Ghraib, the manipulation of intelligence before the Iraq war, and now, importantly, about Iran, a country our honoree wrote at length in the New Yorker again, I thought they were famous for their editing, was not interested in nuclear weapons. This nonsense came out almost exactly the same time as the IAEA, of all people, produced detailed evidence exactly to the contrary. Our man sloughed this off, let certain members of this audience be warned, as the excessive, excessive influence of, quote, Jewish money from New York, unquote. I'm out of this, I'm from L.A. Okay. So we can say our first rather honoree is the poster child for a phenomenon endemic to our culture, slanted opinion writing, masquerading as serious, unbiased journalism, would that there was such a thing. But at least he's consistent. In the view of this man, everything about Western civilization is evil and or corrupt, except, of course, when it pays his check. It is with ironic pleasure that I present the first rather award of PJ Media and the new criterion to Seymour Hirsch. Well, thank you, Roger. You know, Roger is an alumnus of uh, Dartmouth College, where I was in his, his alma mater was in the news last week when I turned out that uh, uh, the word fiesta is now banned at uh, Dartmouth College. A, a student group was planning a Cinco de Mayo party, this being Cinco de Mayo, a fundraiser for a heart disease charity, uh, and uh, there's a Mexican-American girl on campus who said, this is offensive to Mexicans, you're appropriating our word, you can't use the word fiesta. And uh, 
Apparently Dartmouth went along and pressed the group to uh, not use the word fiesta. So my advice for you, Roger, is when you go to your next reunion, be very careful of the South Asian alumni because the word pajamas comes from Hindi. And uh, that concludes our festivities. Uh, the uh, bar, as I mentioned before, will be closed at 8. So uh, if you can wait till I get there and then uh, make a mad rush for the bar. And uh, the food stations will remain open for some time uh, even after 8. Uh, so uh, thank you very much. It's been great.